On the second floor of the Gardner Museum in Toronto, there's an extensive display of ceramics and porcelain that showcase examples of an art form that represents the pinnacle of 18th century European sophistication. In one room, there's a full table setting, complete with the decorative objects that suggest the cosmopolitan tastes of British society at the time. And in one vitrine off to the side, there are a few figures based on characters from the Commedia dell'arte, which was a popular form of comedy in Italian theaters from the 16th to 18th centuries. One object stands out for contemporary audiences because it's a small, hard-paced porcelain figure of a harlequin, and it sports a distinctive black mask. There's a curious sign beside it that asks, is Harlequin in blackface? In the right. 18th century theater, blackface was very common on mm -hmm. stage, but what I always say to people is, we shouldn't think that that's neutral. It's because black people couldn't go on stage without it. That's Cheryl Thompson. She's a professor in the School of Creative Industries at Ryerson University. Her first book was titled Beauty in the Box, Detangling the Roots of Canada's Black Beauty Culture. But it's her current research on the history of blackface in Canada that she'll share with us to understand this little figurine, which is the focus of this, the third of a four-part series produced by Hyperallergic in conjunction with the Gardner Museum and its community art space, a platform for experimentation and socially engaged art. I'm Hirak Vartanyan, and this is the Art Movements podcast from Hyperallergic. In the first two episodes, we examined how artists continue to push boundaries through their engagement with museums and materials. And now we're going to do a deep dive into the wondrous world of collections to understand how museum objects can function as a type of societal memory and help us understand the contemporary world around us. I invited Cheryl to the Gardner Museum to be introduced to this curious German object from the 1760s. Cheryl? Hi. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Uh, so we're just goes hopefully straight to the gallery. Okay. Right. Okay, so we can just go straight up? Yeah. Good, perfect. Right here. Why don't we take a look at the object first? Yeah. And then, so it's just right over here. Her insight, as you'll discover, is invaluable. There are still theater companies that require a black character, and they will ask a white student to put on blackface because they say, well, that's the tradition. Uh, but not putting it into context, it's a tradition of exclusion. That's why. Um, and it, it all goes back to like the Moors too, mm -hmm. like through through Europe and, and this idea of this. I mean, it's just a comic foil. It's right. not meant to. <laughs> right. And okay. <laughs> all I can say to that is like, okay. It's very easy to make those comments when it's not you. Right. Right. And, and when someone is always assuming the other in performance, the other is going to eventually not like it so much because we never have the power to do the same. 
Of course. Right? There's never the inverse. And even if we do the inverse, it doesn't really carry any right. weight. Like, it doesn't right. mean anything, right? So, because I think of Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy has worn white face in right. a lot of movies, and people think it's funny, right. right? And it goes off, and there's no politics around it. I mean, there's no point in modern history. So I date modern history to the beginning of the slave trade. So like 15th century onward, where black doesn't take on a negative connotation. I mean, the dictionary.com recently decided to change the definition because even there it's saying, okay, this is centuries of a negative connotation with the word black. Maybe we need to redefine it. So how did they redefine it? Well, first of all, they agreed with the capitalization Mm -hmm. that black should always be capitalized. And they just started to add in some positive things around black, as in black people, (laughs) black colored fruit. Like they just started to add some more positive things because generally speaking, black has a negative connotation. Her research is truly fascinating. And it challenges the widely held belief that Canada has historically been much more tolerant than its neighbor to the south. I asked another specialist to join us to help us understand the context we're talking about. So my name is Rania Al-Mujammar. I am an artist and anti-oppressive practice consultant working predominantly with contemporary arts institutions, including museums, fine art galleries, performance spaces, and the like. I've worked with the Gardner Museum in a consulting capacity, helping to shape some of the museum's equity-related work and to help the museum cultivate relationships with diverse audiences. But how did this small sign at the Gardner Museum that asks us to consider the connection between blackface and this small German object come to be? Rania gives us the background. So I uh, heard from Gardner staff that during a community tour of the galleries, somebody had seen the figure and had said, hey, this figure looks a lot like blackface to me. And as a result of that, this sort of instigated a response from the various departments that have to deal with community and and objects, from curatorial, from programs, from media and communications, all of the various departments that would have to engage with an issue like this. What resulted was a largely uncoordinated response and uh, not for lack of trying. I think a lot of people put a lot of effort into the conversation, but also people had such diverging views, diverging frames of reference, that it was very difficult to have a conversation across lines of difference like this. And I think it was pretty symbolic of what a lot of institutions, the Gardner and elsewhere, engage with when they deal with contentious objects like this one. I asked Sequoia Miller, chief curator at the Gardner, to join us and share his insights into this small porcelain object. He joined the museum last year, and he's already helping to make the museum more welcoming to the public. He offers us some historical background about the issue and the object. So the Harlequin figures are among a group of figures from uh, depicting characters in the Italian street theater of the Renaissance called Commedia dell'arte. These figures are widely represented within collections, decorative arts collections, and certainly porcelain collections. They've been central to the story of the Gardner Museum because they were avidly collected by our founders, and so the ones we have on view now have been part of the founding collection of the museum. The uh, George R. Gardner, one of the founders, um, very closely identified with Harlequin as a, as a figure. So we have a number of 18th century Harlequin figures in the collection, and they've been on view for 35 years. Turns out George Gardner was an investor in the Harlequin Company. 
The same publisher that produces those Pulp Fiction romance books with the schmaltzy covers. So he thought, hey, I'm going to connect my love of porcelain with an aspect of my business life. And here we are. The theater of masks is constituted of different characters, sort of stock characters, Harlequin, um, Il Dottore, the doctor, etc. Many of them have different types of leather masks on them. The Harlequin in particular tends to be either a brown or a black mask and is identified by a sort of diamond-like suit and fulfilled the role of a sort of jester, a kind of playful kind of character. It was very popular by the early 19th century the Harlequin figure had been adapted into English pantomime. The characters of English pantomime formed the basis of minstrelsy, which emerged principally in the American colonies, but also globally throughout the British Empire in the early 19th century. Minstrelsy, of course, became the basis of blackface and a lot of racist performing idioms. When now we look back word in time at these characters, the question is, what are the connections between, say, the Harlequin as a Renaissance character and later 19th and 20th century minstrelsy characters? The figures that we have in the gallery are somewhat in between. So they're in between the 16th century Renaissance origin of the figure and the 19th and 20th century sort of brutal racialization of the figure. One of the questions that theater historians have started to investigate is how were these characters understood or perceived in the 18th century? There's a you know a pretty strong argument that there were racial interpretations of this black mask and of this black figure. Over the course of the 18th century, of course, the global slave trade intensified, the brutalism of the slave trade intensified, and the range of depictions of this Harlequin character diversified. To our contemporary eyes, many of these depictions, say in prints, sometimes in paintings, and occasionally in ceramics, will appear as blackface. Mm-hmm. Again, the question is whether these are racialized depictions or whether these are contemporary understandings that are looking, contemporary lenses that we're applying. Sequoia's openness to this type of questioning is part of a new wave of inquiry taking place at museums all around the world, which are now attracting new audiences that are looking at these objects in new and interesting ways to understand bigger questions. I asked Rania about her own experience working in Canada versus the U.S. And is it all that different? I think it's been really sort of challenging, exciting, and infinitely rewarding that I get the opportunity to work on both sides of the border. Um, There is such a big meanwhile in Canada narrative um, that this is happening in the States. Meanwhile in Canada, it's a racial utopia that people are stunned. This is a cultural context where into the 90s, Canada had residential schools that were responsible for the kidnapping, abuse, and genocide of Indigenous communities that up until last year, we were hearing reports of forced sterilization of Indigenous women. The cultural context is that Canada is a really great brand. I think in a front-facing global capacity, Canada, it's Canada the good, largely. Um, it's this multicultural haven. And Canada does a really good job of managing that international brand. 
that often people are really quite shocked. I meet adult Canadians who were born and raised here, and when I talk about the history of slavery in Canada, people are stunned. There was slavery in Canada. The only reason that it wasn't as large-scale as it was in the States is because they did a study and they realized the climate was not conducive to the plantation model. So there is um, a very strong, homogenous perception of who a Canadian person is. In this country, Canadian means white. Everybody else has to hyphenate. Cheryl sees it clearly tied to the history of immigration in both countries. In the U.S., most Americans can date their entry into America to that big migration in the late 19th, early 20th century. Or there was another migration um, post-World War II. Or if you're African-American, slavery, right? So rooted, there's like a rootedness, right? In Canada, we have two narratives. We have the pre-1960s era and post. So pre-1960s, those are the people, same idea, we had a great migration too in the late 19th century, early 20th century, there's those people. Then there's the multiculturalism, there's the diversity and all that stuff in the post-60s, really 70s moment where I know a lot of people that I went to school with, that's when their families came. It doesn't matter Asian, Black, South American, they all came in the post-70s, 60s moment. They're new to the country. They don't know anything about what happened before, right? And so I think a lot of those histories were just lost. Because if you're a new immigrant coming in 1975, what do you, like, you're just, you're happy to be here. You think Canada is amazing. You don't, you're not seeing any of the racial, political, economic tensions of your homeland. You're thinking this is a a milk and honey place, except if you're black. (laughs) Because the one universal experience of being black is that no matter where you go, there is racism. It's just the facts. I could go on a trip to France and I would experience exactly what I would experience here. I could go to Algeria, right? So for us, we're always having to engage with the past. We're always having to understand. And of course, the sort of the canon of Black Canada really doesn't start until 1971. Like most people credit Robin Winks who wrote The Blacks in Canada, and Robin Winks was a white man (laughs) writing about Black Canada. I mean, he did as good a job as he could have done, but that's the reality. The first text that's telling our story is 1971. Both Cheryl and Rania seem to agree that the history of Canada and the U.S. may vary in the details, but some of the larger themes are often the same. Cheryl's research proves this. What is the earliest example of blackface in Canada you discovered? Uh, 1862. Like, in terms of actually being noted in the newspaper. It was probably, like, the history of minstrelsy is that it starts really in the 1830s and 40s and in New York. New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C. And the earliest performers were basically, like, rich well, not rich, but well-to-do, somewhat white men who at that time in the U.S. See, U.S. history is really fascinating because while everyone focuses on the Civil War, they don't understand that there was a lot of decades leading up to that battle, <laughs> like things were happening. So in the 1820s, it's really the beginning of the mi- one of the earliest migrations of African-Americans north. People, again, think it was the Underground Railroad that suddenly people were going north, but they weren't. It was really around the 1820s. So in the 1820s, 1830s, you have a lot of African-Americans living in the North and now a generation born free who are not enslaved and who are co-mingling and who are trying to get jobs. And at the same time, what do you have in the North? You have the Irish, you have, you know, working class British people, you have 
Italian, you have all these ethnic groups that are not really liking each other and living in, you know, tenements and all these other things. And then they're amongst African Americans. Mm -hmm. And so you have this. So minstrelsy really comes up to be a commentary of we need to put these people back in their place. And where is their place? It's on the plantation. Most of the black the blackface characters would be on the plantation longing for home. A lot of the minstrel songs are about home, Dixie, and how great life is, and all and the whole trope of watermelon and chicken. As we get into the 1850s, if you know American history, in 1850, they passed a second fugitive slave law. And this is the law that basically makes it unsafe for any African-American. It doesn't matter if they're born free or not, to be, or even if they're living in the North, they could then be captured and, and sold back into slavery. That is another moment where you see that is really the beginning of the Underground Railroad, right, from 1850 onward. And that's when minstrelsy is performed in Canada. It really does start kind of in the 1850s, but by 1860s, it's now being promoted in the newspapers. So that's kind of the timeline of like the little history of how it, how it comes here and, and how, it, how it resonates with people, especially in Ontario, because you know that kind of is the terminus on the Underground Railroad and people living in Ontario at that time would have been really aware of American politics. Reality is, Local Canadian productions of blackface have been going on since about the 1880s. So Canadians putting on blackface shows in Canada is at least over 120 some odd, 40 years old. So it's not just something that's been imported, it's something that we have done too. You say it begins 1862. Where does it sort of peter out and then where does it actually end? Or does it end? No, I mean it never really ends. Nothing ever ends. <laughs> um, when I say 1862, so that's, again, that's the, the Circus mm -hmm. Act. And then we have the imported minstrel show that, or the touring show that's coming from the U.S. That's really from like the 1870s, the late 60s, right through until around the 1930s. Like around you get to the 1930s that you don't really see that anymore. But then... In between that time, I would say about from 1900 or so, or 1890s even, right through until the 1940s, that's when it's localized. So I'm mostly, my research is focused on Toronto. It's hard to do this kind of thing, to look in every region. I know visually that there are visual records in archives in Alberta, in Saskatchewan, like I've seen them, right? In, in London, Ontario, in Hamilton, and then go in, in Montreal, and then out east to Halifax. So the visual record, I have the country covered. Textually, I've really just focused on Toronto, ha London, and Hamilton. Mm -hmm. So I can tell you that you have a combination of deals. You have the minstrel show being performed at the high school in the 1920s. You have little girls and boys clubs performing minstrel shows, hospitals putting them on in the 1910s and 20s. Um, you have local, like, fundraisers like so there was a lot of minstrel shows that were put on as fundraisers for world war one mm -hmm. and these fundraisers were actually held at like legit theaters like the toronto canoe club for example they had a minstrel show in in fundraiser for world war one so there was a lot of that there's a lot of church groups 
the church and the minstrel show was so intertwined that I actually located one editorial in the Toronto Globe, I think it is, in like the 1920s, where a pastor is writing an op-ed complaining that parishioners seem to enjoy the minstrel show more than the actual sermon. And so we need to get back. <laughs> we need to get back to the sermon. Like, you guys are liking this way too much. And so that tells you, again, how welcoming a space could those places have been for black people if this is being performed at a church the church stuff is the scariest of all because whenever you combine something with a faith people don't tend to think anything's wrong with it why would they right so so that's why the study of blackface is so complicated because you have these overlapping times these overlapping performances and i it's not that people want to blame people but they always want to they always want a neat timeline and it just isn't neat. It, it just, it just isn't. But I would say in my research, once you get into the 1940s, you don't really see it in the newspaper anymore. I think the last record that I have is like 1965. By now, it's probably become very clear that the history of blackface in Canada is more extensive than most people probably realize. For instance, Cheryl has encountered hundreds of blackface and minstrel images, and she's archived over 10,000 textual references that exist in Canadian newspapers of the period. I asked her if there were any unique characteristics of blackface in Canada. I didn't expect her to mention Wilfrid Laurier, who was the seventh Prime Minister of Canada, serving from 1896 to 1911. Yeah, I mean, the only one area where you where you do find this is in Quebec. So in Montreal, especially, the Montreal Star, for example, used to caricature the Laurier government as the minstrel show. <laughs> so, really? yeah, so there's cartoons in the Montreal Star. And even there's another cartoon, I think it was called Songs of the Bytown Coons. Like, literally, that's the name of it. 19. And Bytown, for many people who don't know, is Ottawa. Exactly. So 1901. And it's the Laurier government that they're showing in various uh, scenes as minstrel characters. So in Quebec, and Quebec is an interesting place because they're really removed from the politics of racism. They see everything through the politics of language. Cheryl mentions that this history has not gone away. Just a few years ago, the Toronto-born hockey player, Piquet Saban, who is also Black, was playing for the Montreal Canadiens. And he would arrive to the arena and some of his fans would don blackface and Afro wigs. She also mentions that a few years ago when she was living in Montreal, there was a student protest and one of the major government leaders was being lampooned by the protesters and represented in blackface. So have any of these stereotypes truly gone away? This topic is more relevant today than ever. Can we talk a little bit about the vocabulary and language? Because I notice as a Canadian that kind of goes back and forth between the U.S. and Canada. In America, people just talk about race as if it's a noun. While in Canada, the term racialized is used more often. And I would love to talk a little bit about that because I think a lot of the listeners are going to be American. And they get confused by this sort of difference in the sort of the vocabulary and why those terms are being used the way they are. Do you have any insight into that? And my own thought on it is because in Canada, and I think it's the same way in the UK, we have a different understanding of that a lot of aspects of race have been put onto us. I like the term racialized because me being black 
has now denotes something to you because of everything that I just talked about. Otherwise, I go to Ghana, I'm just a person. <laughs> like I'm actually no longer really a black person. I'm a person because this is a black space. So I think in America- Or you're maybe you're Canadian. Or I'm Canadian, exactly. In America, they like, and I, and I can see this on both, and this is across the board, white America, black America. They take race as an embodiment that is static and unchanging. So you really are a bit, um, I don't wanna say stuck, but it's very difficult in America to not perform your racial identity. So, and I, I can speak to this because I lived in America for a couple of years when I was doing my undergrad. And I remember showing up and it's like, right away they were like, where are you from? why don't you talk you don't you talk funny and i'm like i do i i think i talk pretty well they're like yeah but you like you you sound like a white person i'm like i do so even that on that basic level i then had to spend the next two years that i lived in the states authenticating my blackness to black people and making white people understand that no i know my culture i'm not whitewashed <laughs> like i kept right. having to defend right. myself right. with these two groups and i and that finally i just started hanging out with the with the latinos because they were kind of in between <laughs> so we got each other i didn't have to explain to them because they're in between and so that was my kind of real understanding of what it means to be black in america and to perform your blackness in canada you just don't really, everybody talks like me. Like it's not, so when you remove the linguistic, again, we're back to language. When you move the language out of it, if everyone's sounding the same, in Canada, you become racialized through these processes of people going, of when you go into a space, they now want you to perform blackness, but they're not even aware that that blackness has been imported from the States. So what you actually think is black is what you know of African-American-ness that's been imported here or you've seen in visiting. I always say white Canadians, most white Canadians don't know black Canadians. They only know our performative selves through what they've seen on TV, in a movie. If you're not really close friends with me or another black person, you really don't know. And, and most black people in Canada are either Caribbean descent, continental African, or that rare group that most people never meet who really are settlers, who came in the 18th century, 19th century, historical black populations. Most people never meet those people. So they think everyone is Jamaican. Right. <laughs> I laugh at that because I actually am Jamaican, so it doesn't offend me. <laughs> but they really think everyone is Jamaican. And I think that is a wholly different discussion than in the US context, where you just have to perform your race a lot more. That sense of performance, Cheryl explains, impacted many groups, but some more than others. So we started this episode looking at this little harlequin that awaits visitors to the second floor of the gardener. And here we are talking about the legacy in the minstrel show. There's a lot to unpack here, but there's a clear urgency for today. So I turned to one of our experts, to help us navigate what comes next. I asked Rania to share what she's learned over the years of anti-racist work and the strategy she employs to help people confront their racist ideas. I think everybody needs a really good distinction between discomfort and harm. Those are two very different things. 
are you uncomfortable? If you're uncomfortable, lean in. You're about to learn something. Um, the reality is discomfort is part of engaging with our art. It's supposed to disrupt us. It's not supposed to be, be pretty. It's supposed to make you feel something. And that something is usually some kind of rupture, um, some kind of discomfort, some kind of pivot, some shift. And I think that that shift is usually a welcome expansion to our worldview. I think you know, give yourself permission to be imperfect in the learning process. But the reality is nothing that I say, nothing that any artist, any anti-racism educator, any anti-oppressive practice consultant says is new. That knowledge is already out there. Go to the Google, as my auntie would say, and look it up, okay? <laughs> the reality is we're actually so deeply lucky, particularly those of us who live here in Toronto, to have an ex one of the best library system in the world, I think, <laughs> the best library system in the world, with some extraordinary things that you can engage with. I think the reality is, you know, ask yourself, do I see myself reflected everywhere in the world? And acknowledge that the, for the majority of us, that's not the reality, that even when we see ourselves reflected, it is through somebody else's eyes. We're constantly living in someone else's imagination. And I think when we imagine ourselves or when we say, hey, that representation of me is not okay, this imagination of my history is not accurate, that, you know, as much as it may make other people feel uncomfortable, it's deeply linked to our survival. I think art gets this rep as this like secondary thing that we do after surviving. But the reality is, you know, I, I think of James Baldwin, who says all artists have to tell the truth and vomit up the anguish. That's the reality for so many of us making that art. You, you know, you make the story before the story makes you. So I find that like, while some people are contending with, well, is this right? Does it make me feel comfortable? Is there evidence for this? Some of us are contending with, will I make it? And I think really coming to face to face with that reality is really important. I think also looking at, you know, critique is part of the creative process. We as, you know, particularly for black artists, we constantly get critique. We get critique through the lens of the so-called contemporary art world that supposedly has a sifter that through critical consensus brings the best work to the top and not who you know and who, you know, your uncle's at some acquisition dinner, which is the reality of things. That's the metric by which we are being judged. And when we critique things, we're critiquing them from the truth of our lived experience. It's incredible the worlds we can discover through one object. Something that opens history up for audiences that its creator may never have anticipated. There's something beautiful in seeing the museum as a site for these new discoveries. A special thanks to Sun Sun for providing the music for this special series. I'm Harag Vartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening to this, the third of a four-part series produced by Hyperallergic in conjunction with the Gardner Museum in Toronto and their community art space, a platform for experimentation and socially engaged art that inspires artists and the public to engage in social action. You can learn more at gardnermuseum.on.ca. Thanks for listening. I still think the you in the